On Thursday, February 7th, at Christie's in Rockefeller Center, Mark Porter, chairman of Christie's Americas, will host a panel discussion featuring Vincent Fremont, Randall Borscheidt, Gary Tintero, and Peter Brandt. They'll be there to discuss Henry Geldzahler, who is the central figure in David Hockney's massive double portrait entitled Henry Geldzahler and Christopher Scott. The painting is the last work of the fabled Ebsworth collection. It will be sold in London in March. The art world's attention has returned to Hockney's double portraits because of the record-breaking sale of Hockney's Portrait of an Artist, Pool of Two Figures, last November for $90 million. Gildzahler was once a towering figure in New York cultural life. He was the curator of contemporary art at the Metropolitan Museum. He later became the Commissioner for Cultural Affairs under Edward I. Koch. In this podcast, we're going to hear from Randall Borscheid, who served as Deputy Commissioner with Gildzahler and was a close friend of his. Borscheid originally met Gildzahler at Andy Warhol's factory. Before we get to Borscheidt's recollections of Geldzahler's life in New York, let's take a moment to understand better the relationship between David Hockney and the subject of his portrait, Henry Geldzahler. To do that, let me play you a brief clip from the documentary Hockney by director Randall Wright. Henry Geldzahler was a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It was obvious that David was the most important person in his life. They spoke on the telephone almost every day for 20 or 30 minutes. Of course, in those days, there were no mobile phones. There was a table where the telephone sat, and you had conversations. They shared absolutely every aspect of their life. The art, the books, the friendships, the lovers, the gossip, everything. It was total friendship. In the 1960s and the 1970s, David was a very unfashionable artist. To have Henry's imprimatur, interest, friendship, I think it meant a great deal to him. And he was not shy about telling David what he liked and what he didn't like about both his art and his personality. But he always did in a very loving, gentle way. One of the things that uh, David relied on Henry every six months or so would be to go through a stack of drawings and every now and then there'd be something and Henry would pick it up and tear it up, throw it in the trash. Now that we've set up the context, let's learn a little bit more about Henry Geldzahler from Randall Borscheid. You worked with Henry Geldzahler and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about his background and how he came to be uh, at the Metropolitan Museum. Henry was born in Belgium, and his Jewish family fled at the last minute. They just barely got out in 1940 and came to New York. My understanding is that they brought almost nothing with them, uh, but they did bring uh, some business connections. The family was in the diamond selling business. He was very well aware uh, that he had been born in Europe and his family had been forced to leave. And so although he was uh, a great lover of New York City and proud to be an American, he understood that uh, the United States and New York had given his family safe harbor, he was also very proud to be a European. His mother uh, and he, when he was uh, 
you know, a, a teenager in New York, spent a lot of time, you know, basically exploring everything New York City had to offer, which in the, the 40s and 50s, with the influx of uh, European emigres that layered on top of an already uh, sort of powerful cultural attraction, made uh, uh, New York City a, a, a place where you had access to, to pretty much everything in high culture, right? Yes. Yes, and it, it, was, um, it was definitely his mother who took him, I think, quite frequently to the Metropolitan Museum. And uh, it's on one of those visits when he was still quite young uh, that a story that he loved to tell and other family members told about him, which uh, they told with pride, but also because it was indicative of his kind of um, self-awareness. Uh, at, at an early age, I don't know exactly when, on a visit with his mother and perhaps others, his, his brother, for example, perhaps was there, uh, to the Met Museum, he apparently looked around at this great place and declared, this is where I want to work. You did say at uh, one point that he was not only a great reader, but also... Um... And, and he's somewhat famously in all the things written about him was was known as a great uh, talker uh, and conversationalist. But but you also yeah. mentioned that he he uh, at least privately among uh, those who knew him well was a great listener. Yes, I think that was one of Henry's great gifts, and I think it explains a lot of uh, the uh, uh, happy relationships he had with a number of people uh, throughout his life including uh, a number of the artists that he became close to. Rather than being this smart kid out of Yale, telling people what to do and telling artists what they should be painting and, and so forth, it always seemed to me that he had a remarkable gift for listening. And the, the combination of his uh, educated intelligence and his tendency to, to listen and receive information, and that information... Uh, didn't just come through conversation. It came through looking at canvases. His natural tendency, I think, was to receive that information and try and understand what they were doing. And it helped me understand how he formed such close friendships with artists like David Hockney and, and Andy Warhol and many, many others. He was listening and receiving and looking and seeing. Um, and I really think that was uh, sort of core to Henry Gelsoller's person, his intelligence, his nature. So he uh, leaves graduate school without getting his PhD because he's an off he is offered a job at the Metropolitan Museum, and that job is you know uh, ostensibly as a curator, but it it really was something more, almost as um, a kind of scout or uh, ambassador. Yes. Could yeah, you... scout is the, the way I think of it. I'm not sure if Henry would have used that word, but, uh, and he was 
you know, he was, this was an entry-level job. He the stories that have been told afterwards are that he was barely ever at the, the museum, and he spent a great deal of his time uh, at artist studios, uh, 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 speaking to collectors, going to dinner parties, you know, being sort of seen uh, and heard uh, around uh, uh, town, and, and, and sort of quickly developed a, a wide range of uh, friendships, including with someone you knew quite well, uh, Andy Warhol. I think they had a special relationship. Uh, it was probably closer with Andy than any other artist other than David Hockney. Those were the two artists I think he became closest to. Two very different personalities, and so I have no doubt that Henry's personal relationship with each of them was quite different. And yet, I think there is this similarity. And is that where you met uh, uh, Geldzahler at the, uh, you know, with Warhol at the factory? Yes, yes. Uh, I had started, a friend of mine had taken me to the factory just for a party, uh, and I had uh, had uh, two short conversations with Andy, uh, in the second of which he invited me to come back to have a screen test, and I did that a couple of days later, two or three days later. And I just started going there because I felt uh, both comfortable there, but also really, really fascinated and intrigued by the whole scene. I mean, Andy was already becoming a famous artist, um, but uh, very, very few people, other than a few like Henry, really had an understanding of the kind of art he was making and where, where he uh, was, um, what position he was destined to occupy in the art world. I certainly didn't. I just knew he was a fascinating, amusing, interesting person, and the, the factory, his studio, was a place that uh, people who knew him, even fairly slightly like me, uh, were welcome to drop in on at any point. But Gelsaller and Warhol had a uh, strong relationship outside of the factory. It wasn't that just that Gelsaller was sort of part of the scene or a hanger-on. It, it, for five or six years, they spoke multiple times a day, sometimes at the beginning and the end of uh, every day. They were like in, in a couple of ways, and one of them was this wide-ranging interest in the world, not just in culture and art. And what about his relationship with Hockney? He, the, the painting, <clears throat> the double portrait, um, with Henry, Henry sitting quietly but regally on the, that huge sofa, that um, picture was, was done, that scene is in the apartment on 7th Avenue somewhere in the 50s. From there he moved to 33 West 9th Street, very conveniently located for his art going life, because it was you know not far from Chelsea. Uh, he could he could get to his friends or his friends' studios, he could get all around town very easily from there. Uh, the apartment was arranged in an unusual way. It had uh, a bedroom with its own bathroom in the front, just uh, off uh, next to the front door. It made it very convenient and easy for Henry to entertain guests. The, most remarkable guests that he entertained there quite frequently when this person was living in London and maybe a little bit in Yorkshire and beginning to 
establish himself in California was David Hockney. Henry became David's New York City host. I don't think everyone wanted to live in New York, but he wanted to stay in touch with New York. He came fairly frequently. One day he says, um, oh, I had a lot of fun yesterday. You know, David is staying with me. He just arrived. And the first thing he said was, Henry, will you take me to the factory? I've never met Andy Warhol, and I would love to meet him. Henry said, of course, I'm sure Andy would be delighted to meet you. I don't know if he even bothered to make a phone call. They went up, and uh, as Henry said that night or the next day, um, they, Henry and, and, I'm sorry, David Hockney and Andy Warhol spoke for two or three hours. They clearly got on and really enjoyed talking to each other. Um, So that was a big success. The next morning, the very next morning, David said, Henry, can we go back to the factory today? (laughs) And Henry said, "Mm, sure. So again, he may have called Andy, maybe not. Uh, They go up there. um, And this time, uh, because you never knew who was going to be there when you were there. This time, Dennis Hopper, the actor, was there visiting. Uh, But Dennis Hopper, the actor, in his role as Dennis Hopper, the photographer, and he had his fancy camera with him, and he started taking pictures. There is a famous photograph, um, which I parenthetically I believe is is going to be exhibited. A copy of it is going to be exhibited at Christie's in connection with this show sale. Um, he Hopper, this is all explained to me by Henry after the fact. Uh, got um, the two artists, David and Andy. Henry, he got them all out on the fire escape over the street. There's Andy looking like Andy, blinking. There's uh, Henry smoking a cigar between Andy and David, and everyone looking very happy. Shortly after that, uh, he's involved in what's probably sort of the most famous uh, show that he did, uh, which was the Mets, um, uh, part of the Mets' 100th uh, anniversary uh, series right. of shows, the uh, New York School uh, 1940 to 1970 uh, painting survey that included uh, some 40 some odd artists and so I think several hundred paintings of, of contemporary art in, in the Met. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more? about how that sort of came about and then what the um, impact of that show was? Well, I, of course, was seeing it as an outsider, uh, not an insider, so I can't give any inside uh, view. But um, by definition, it was accepted by the board and the uh, director of the museum as appropriate, as an appropriate way to celebrate the museum centennial. Um, and, you know, one can imagine that Henry probably made the case, and others, I'm sure, responded positively to this idea, that uh, if you're celebrating your 100th birthday in your museum, uh, it's a time not only to celebrate your birth 100 years ago, but to, to declare your rebirth. And uh, I think that, in a sense, was what Henry was trying to do or aiming to do with this show, that um, 
not in any way to diminish the greatness and importance of all the great art over the centuries and cultures all around the world uh, that the Met's collection consisted of. But it was a statement that the Met, as the largest and most important museum in New York City, <clears throat> was well aware that uh, it was in New York at a time when there was a great flourishing of art in New York, uh, the product of contemporary artists. And um, uh, anyway, that, that that's always the way I interpreted that show. Um, and I think it's, you know, fairly consistent with the way it was talked about and written about. I, I think that the Calvin Tompkins New Yorker profile touches on that uh, a little bit. And, you know, I got a, a better sense of the... Uh, give and take and sometimes complexity and even difficulty of decision-making and his general, his relationship in general with the leadership of the museum. Uh, Tom Hoving in particular being someone that he uh, sometimes strongly disagreed with, that they disagreed with each other. And yet the leadership went along with this show it was not the only show celebrating the centennial, but it was far and away the most visible and important show. At the same time that he is organizing that show, David Hockney is painting this double portrait. It it also comes from 1969, um, <laughs> when when Henry's show and the New York School uh, uh, show uh, was um, uh, uh, going up, and and it's yeah. it's such an interesting painting because it it, it appears to depict uh, Gelzoller almost you know at the apex of this odd couch, but but almost on a throne uh, in in this room. It, it's it's as if um, uh, Hockney is uh, uh, you know painting his coronation. Yes, he is. <clears throat> In a funny way, it's almost a Buddhist image, <clears throat> although I've also heard it referred to as a classical Christian image, but to, to, to follow this idea of it being a Buddhist image, he, <clears throat> like the Buddha himself, there's something royal and princely about Henry's bearing and presentation uh, on this grand sofa in this large room, <clears throat> but there's also the sense of wisdom um, uh, emanating from this intelligent face. Uh, and I think <clears throat> those are the things, those are aspects of the painting that make it wonderful, <clears throat> especially to those of us who knew Henry, but I think even to people who never, you know, really even heard of him, <clears throat> that you, you get a sense that the artists understood this was not an ordinary chap. This was an extraordinary person, not because of his physique, but because of something deep inside of him, his identity, his intelligence, his spirit. And I think that comes through in, in David's portrait. In in this period when Gelzoller is no longer so uh, famous, uh, it's kind of a reminder. It's almost like a, a clue. Clearly the painting suggests he's this... Um, uh, important figure, and it's almost you have to uh, uh, decode that and understand uh, why. Not long after uh, that, I mean, I, I, a few years, uh, uh, Gelsoller moves on from the um, from the Met 
I, I know that he had spent a year at the National Endowment of the Arts, uh, uh, you know, uh, organizing grants and uh, had a reputation, at least in Cal Tompkins telling as being, you know, as extraordinary, uh, uh, efficient administrator uh, and all. And he eventually takes this role as the cultural commissioner uh, in New York, where you work with him. Could you tell us a little bit about the sort of period afterwards? When he became the uh, the head of the uh, contemporary art department, I, th- I think it was at this point, um, and I think it was probably uh, either around the time of the big 6970 show, or maybe shortly after that, um, he moved to 9th Street in Greenwich Village, just off of 5th Avenue, and <clears throat> he found himself in the con- congressional district of a man who um, had uh, recently been elected to Congress representing that district, Edward I. Koch, later to become mayor of the city of New York, uh, in which role he hired Henry, uh, 10 years later or whatever, uh, to be commissioner of cultural affairs for the city. But but when, when Ed Koch was elected mayor uh, and Henry was living in his district, he wrote him a letter uh, and said, uh, just like you know, I'm uh, a curator at the Met Museum, but I also am a constituent of yours. I live on 9th Street in your district. And I'd like you to know that uh, if you would like um, uh, some artwork from the Metropolitan to hang in your public office in Washington or New York, um, uh, please let us know, and we'd be happy to uh, arrange, lend you some prints. And Koch apparently uh, was very touched by this and immediately accepted the offer. And some prints were delivered to, to Koch's offices. Um, <clears throat> when <clears throat> later in 77, in the period between November 77 and January 78, uh, uh, which when Ed Koch was first elected in November and then uh, became mayor in January 78, uh, in that period, that's, of course, when mayors are uh, filling out their administration, uh, appointing commissioners and other officials in, in their government. <clears throat> and uh, I remember hearing uh, through political from political sources uh, that rather to the surprise of a number of people, uh, Ed Koch had invited Henry Delzoller to be his cultural affairs commissioner. And this was surprising because he wasn't an establishment figure. He had the reputation of being, you know, a a little bit of an outsider, a little bit of a naughty uh, person, even though he had this important role at the Metropolitan Museum. Um, And um, I have no doubt that uh, one element in that perception was the fact that Henry was uh, quite visibly gay, and uh, that was a consideration, a more serious consideration in those days. Uh, Clearly, it didn't uh, bother Mayor-elect Koch. Um, Who was not so visibly gay himself. Henry, in my view, the reason Henry accepted that position, which required him resigning from the Metropolitan Museum, uh, goes back again to 
this um, interest in public affairs, in government, in policy, uh, in the larger society, uh, going way beyond the narrow world of the art market and museums. And uh, in Henry's mind, it wasn't either or. He was passionately interested in both. And uh, his career uh, in at least two instances, his time at the National Endowment and then his time as Commissioner of Cultural Affairs, shows his interest in and willingness to blend the two and connect the two interests. He managed to, to go to artist studios and to see gallery shows uh, during the day when he was the Commissioner of Cultural Affairs. I remember on a number of occasions, we'd get in the city car, you know, rent him as a public official, uh, to go from our office in Midtown down to City Hall for a meeting. <clears throat> and he'd have the, he'd try and leave a little early and have the driver stop in Soho and pop into a gallery to see a new show. Um, and by the way, Henry was famous for being able to uh, see and absorb uh, an art exhibition in eight or nine minutes. <laughs> um, so he could, that, that's one of the things that made it possible for him to, to uh, keep doing that while he was busily uh, engaged as the Commissioner of Cultural Affairs. He had the visual capacity to take in work uh, and remember it and understand it in, in so quick a, a yeah. period? Yes, but also he was uh, had literally a discriminating eye. <clears throat> so if he went into a David Hawkins show with 20 paintings, uh, he would stand at the entrance and focus on five. Not that he wouldn't look at the other 15, but he would focus on the five that seemed um, uh, at a little distance most interesting to him. And he'd go up and examine them very closely, but not for very long. It didn't take him long to see what he was looking for, to absorb what was there, and to kind of make up his mind. And he was out there uh, in that job. He was as passionately interested, interested in finding out how to help uh, immigrant artists in immigrant communities in Queens, you know, who didn't even speak English because they had just come from India or or uh, Latin America or Africa or places like that, uh, as he was in the greatest art being produced of the day, as he had been at the Met. So just take me uh, towards the end. How many years was he the commissioner? I never directly asked him why he resigned as commissioner after five years was that um, he thought, okay, I've done this for five years. I've accomplished something. I feel proud of that. Uh, I've made a difference, um, but it's exhausting. Uh, it's nonstop work, running all around town, meeting with hundreds of people all the time and, and negotiating you know, in, in politics, in government, in, in an area that he had never been active before. And um, I think he finally was just kind of exhausted and thought, uh, now perhaps is a good time for me to uh, uh, 
adopt a quieter life so that I can write and be, you know, have a calmer um, schedule. And that's essentially what he did. So he retired from the, you know, resigned from the Minister of Cultural Affairs <clears throat> and started spending, you know, uh, almost all of his time in the day at his Ninth Street apartment. <clears throat> and then at a certain point, he got a place in Southampton. And at first, he seemed to use it just occasionally. Uh, you know, I, I thought of it as a, a kind of weekend and summer place for him. But uh, after not a very long time, and I do not remember how, how long, it was six months, a year, two years, uh, I don't remember, uh, he decided to reverse uh, the pattern of his life. He kept the apartment on 9th Street, but that was the place that he only visited occasionally. He moved to Southampton, where he lived almost full-time. And there he was primarily a writer. Uh, to be sure, he had friends out there who were both artists and people with different roles in the art world, you know, dealers and collectors and so forth. Um, and he seemed to be very comfortable and happy there. Um, and uh, he had a few professional engagements as a curatorial advisor. Uh, Dia has a presence in Bridgehampton, and he helped curate that small presence in an old church. Um, he was brought in occasionally in different places to offer curatorial advice. He did so, for example, uh, at, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, brought in by David Rockefeller to uh, give advice on art for the Rainbow Room. Um, so he did, you know, a few projects like that. It was certainly not uh, um, a daily working life for him. It was something that I think he enjoyed doing, and he, you know, probably enjoyed being paid something for it, but I, I don't think that was the motivation. Uh, but it, it wasn't long after that that he uh, became ill and died. Correct. Randall, thank you for all your help with this. If listeners want to learn more about Henry Geldzahler's life, Christie's will be recording the February 7th panel. It will be available on YouTube in mid-February.